Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. I'd uh, love to extend my own welcome to you. Uh, I know uh, Andrew has already welcomed you. It's uh, wonderful uh, to see you here and again, especially uh, those who've come uh, for Elliot's baptism. And just so you know what's going to happen now, I'm going to speak for the next 20 or so minutes. uh, And uh, just to try and explain the Bible passage that we've been looking at. Uh, We believe here that the Bible is God's word, that it uh, is the way God speaks to us today. And uh, so it's my job not to say what I think, uh, but to see what the Bible says. And uh, and so we encourage people to have their Bibles open in front of them so that they can test to see that if I'm saying something other than the Bible, you don't have to listen to it at all. Uh, We don't have to listen at all if you don't want to anyway. But uh, page 707 is the page number. And uh, so if you can get hold of a Bible, you might like to turn to it now. And I'll pray for us uh, that God would indeed speak to us through it as I explain it now. Let's pray. To come with reverent fear as we've been singing, Heavenly Father, we do pray that that would be the case, that we would come to you uh, with a right fear, uh, that we would come to you knowing that as we do, we will be part of the kingdom that will outlast the years And so we ask you to help us to put our trust in the Lord Jesus alone and so be sure of the future for eternity. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Now, uh, John and Nicola and others who have uh, children, young children, I don't know whether this is true for you, but I reckon being a parent is the most demanding and stretching thing that I do. Most of the time I feel as if I'm making it up as I go along and quite frankly making a mess of it as I go along. But there is one thing that I am certain about when it comes to parenting, and that is my responsibility to warn my children of danger. If my children are going to do something that is dangerous for them, physically or emotionally or spiritually, I will warn them. And I do that because I love them. Uh, John and Nicola, no doubt you've already often warned uh, Elliot, and uh, you will in the future, uh, whether it be warning him not to touch the hot fire or as he gets older, the dangers of crossing the road, or or strangers, or the internet, or drugs, or whatever. Sorry, I've probably just ruined your day as you're thinking about all that lies ahead. But we warn our children because we love them. Right at the beginning of this book of Isaiah, one of the uh, 66 books of the Bible, the Lord God describes his people as his children. Children that he has raised, he says in chapter 1, verse 2. And because the Lord is infinitely loving and kind, he warns his children of the dangers that they face. Indeed, that's what we've uh, seen as we've uh, looked over the past five weeks at the book of Isaiah from chapter 13, uh, well, eventually through to 27. Largely in these chapters, we've heard the same message week after week. Indeed, uh, when I got home last Sunday, I talked to my wife about what I'd just preached, and she said, well, basically you said the same as you did the week before and the week before that. So that was encouraging and humbling. (laughs) But she was right, you see, through his prophet Isaiah, over and over again, the Lord has told his people, don't turn to the world for security and for a future. The world and nothing in it can bring us the security that we need. And what's more, the world will be judged for turning away from the Lord. That's been the message over and over again. And the Lord has repeated that same message to his children over and over, just as I say the same thing to my children over and over again. Every time we pull up in a car park, as our children get out of the car, I say to them, be careful of the cars. Not the parked ones, but the ones that are still moving. 
Uh, every time they go to school, the girls walk to school on their own now because they're 13. When they walk to school, I say to them, be careful of the roads. Almost every day I say that to them, not to scare them, but to warn them of a very real danger that could ruin their lives or even end their lives. Now look, the Lord is a much better father than I will ever be. And so we can be sure his persistent warning to not to put our trust in anything apart from him comes from his love for us. And it is something we need to hear because we are all looking for security one way or another. It's a big issue for us. Uh, We want security for our children. I do. Uh, I don't know. You may already have made plans to make uh, Elliot's future as secure as you can. I'm sure you have. Uh, We made a will. We've already made one. We made another one this week. Naming legal guardians, setting up a savings plan, all that sort of stuff. We take steps to bring security for our children. And to do that, we look to all manner of things to give them security that we so long for them. But it's not just children who need to feel secure. We need it too. One way and another. We need security because we feel insecure. I was was struck when I read an extract from a book in... Uh, that uh, Ruby Wax has written. I've not bought the book. It was just an extract in the Sunday Times back in May. I had to put that in. Um, In it, she writes honestly about her battle with depression, although uh, she says that what she writes isn't exclusively, exclusively for the depressed. She says this, None of us is equipped for the 21st century. It's too hard, too fast, too full of fear. She goes on, we all have the same equipment. We suffer, we laugh, we rage, we bitch. We're all vulnerable, delicate creatures under our tough fronts, our hard exteriors. Now that's it, isn't it? We're all vulnerable. We're all looking for security. We know uh, we long uh, for a secure future. We're encouraged to plan for a secure future, save up a little nest egg. Put money aside for a rainy day. Have a pension plan that will track inflation. We want to feel secure in our relationships, in our jobs, in our homes. In so many ways we look to find security. Because Ruby Rax is right. And it's not often that I think I'm going to say that from this pulpit. But Ruby Rax is right. Deep down we're all vulnerable. We don't feel equipped to live in this scary world. And is it any wonder We know how very insecure and fragile this world is. The the, the big three are always looming over us. Global recession, global terrorism, global warming. As I watched the television news on Friday night, having prepared this all week, I, I, I felt it really acutely. There was the tragedy of the train crash in France, a typhoon in Taiwan, the Belfast riots, and the Heathrow Boeing Dreamliner that caught fire. Just what you need before setting off on your summer holidays. It all tells us that no matter how well we plan to give ourselves security, we can't mitigate against the greatest threat to us all, death. And that ultimate reality leaves us all feeling vulnerable when we think about it, which of course is why we choose not to think about it. Well, look, this section of Isaiah has all been about security and where to find it. For as Isaiah wrote, all those years ago, 2,700 years ago, as Isaiah wrote, God's people felt insecure from the global threats of their day, threats that were not so different from our own. And when they felt secure, they were tempted to turn to all manner of things in this world to try and find security. And so in chapters 13 to 23, the Lord has been warning his children of the great dangers of looking for security in the wrong place. 
and the wrong place being anywhere than him. Well, now, in chapters 24 to 27, and if you're here for the first week, you've come at a good time because we're given a summary of the messages that have been in the previous 11 chapters. And it begins in chapter 24 and verse 1 with the Lord showing us why it is so dangerous to look to this world for security. Do you see what he says, verse 1? See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. Over the last weeks, we've seen how the Lord has zoomed in on different nations in the world of Isaiah's day and how he's focused on different aspects of the world. And every time he's shown how foolish it is to put our trust in those things because they will be destroyed. Now here in verse 1, he lumps them all together and says the whole earth will be devastated. It's not a secure place. And here we see that there is, in fact, a greater threat to this world than the threats of global warming and nuclear arms in the hands of despotic leaders. And the greater threat is the coming judgment of God. Verse 1, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth. That is a remarkable claim. Just that verse alone says that the Lord Almighty is sovereign ruler of everything. This is a claim that he rules time. He will determine when history as we know it comes to an end. He is king over the whole world. No nation, not even the most powerful empire, will be able to stand against the Lord when he wraps up history. And what we read next is that he is the judge of all people. Verse 2. It will be the same for priest as for people, for master as for servant, for mistress as for maid, for seller as for buyer, for borrower as for lender, for debtor as for creditor. Do you see, he says everybody's the same. When the Lord decides to act in this way, in this final act of judgment, no one will be able to appeal to their social standing or their wealth or their career to help them. All the things we think will get us out of a fix when we're in trouble will be useless. On this final day in the history of the world, no one will be able to stand up and say, I'm a successful businessman, I employ hundreds of people, or I have huge assets in my bank account, or I'm known by millions all over the world. No, verse 2. It will be the same for everyone. You see, just as those things won't save us now if we're on the wrong train or plane, they won't make the slightest difference when God wraps up history as we know it. For be sure, God's judgment will be utterly comprehensive, absolute. That's what verse 3 tells us. The earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken this word completely Totally, utterly. The Lord has spoken his word, and he not only has the final word, but his word is final. Now look, it's that final day of judgment that we need to be secure in above all things. In the verses that follow, we're told more of that, what the Bible calls the dreadful day of the Lord. And we see that everything that makes life enjoyable, everything that makes life sustainable will be destroyed on that day. Do you see verse 4? The earth dries up and withers. The, earth, the world languishes and withers. The exalted of the earth languish. The temperatures have been brilliant the last few days. I know some people hate the, uh, the hot weather. I love it. So I'm sorry if it's hard for you. I love it. But I have had these little seedlings that have really been struggling in the heat Had I not watered them liberally every evening, they'd have been dried up and withered. Indeed, one or two have dried up and withered. That's the picture of verse 4. 
But the surprise is it's not just for a few little seedlings, but for all the vegetation of the earth. And not just everything that grows, but it's also for the, the fate of all people who flourished. End of verse 4, the, old, the exalted of the earth languish on that final day of judgment. And the reason is there in verse 5. The earth is defiled by its people. They've disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. That phrase, the everlasting covenant, is a reference to the agreement that God made with his world and all people when creating the universe. We see it right at the beginning of the Bible. God made a covenant, an agreement, that he would be our God and that we should be his people. And he always kept his side of the bargain. He never stopped loving us. He's always been loving and kind and generous. He continues to give us many good things all the time. Food and friends and fun and families, they all come from the hand of God. He's kept his side of the bargain, but we, the human race, have so badly reneged on our side of the bargain. Every day and all over the world, all people from all nations disobey God. They disobey his law. And the law can't be broken without consequences. We know that. We know that in this life. You break the law, they'll be consequences. They'll find you eventually. We may think we're getting away with it, but eventually it catches up with us. And so it's like a, a serially adulterous wife. The human race has been so promiscuous in running off with other lovers that eventually there's only one thing for it, a permanent and irreconcilable parting of the ways. That's what this final judgment is about. God saying to the inhabitants of the earth, I've loved you, I've been faithful to you, I've kept my promises to you, but you never return to me. And now it's over forever. Therefore, verse 6, a curse consumes the earth. Its people must bear their guilt. See, God's judgment upon the world is the punishment for people's guilt, the guilt of having turned our backs on the God who's not stopped loving us, the guilt of having lived our lives for ourselves. And you see, that is what this baptism service actually acknowledges. It acknowledges that we have turned from God... And we need cleansing. That's what the water was all about. It's a symbol of cleansing, the need to be cleansed. And the need that without him we are doomed. That's what we see here. A world that has spent its time living for itself in revelry eventually comes to an end. Now let me read verses 7 to 13 and see how this has been a world that has kind of just been out to enjoy itself, ignoring God. Uh, pick the picture of wine. The new wine dries up, verse 7, and the vine withers. All the merrymakers groan. The gaiety of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the revelers has stopped. The joyful harp is silent. No longer do they drink wine with a song. The beer is bitter to its drinkers. The ruined city lies desolate. The entrance to the house is barred. In the streets they cry out for wine. All joy turns to gloom. All gaiety is banished from the earth. The city is left in ruins. Its gate is battered to pieces. So it will be on the earth and among the nations as when an olive tree is beaten, or as when gleanings are left after the grape harvest. It's a picture of judgment. And there in verse 13, it's the picture of an olive tree when harvested. Now, I've never harvested an olive tree, but I'm told that to, to do it, you beat a tr the tree with a stick to make the olives fall. Uh, by the end of the harvesting, uh, the olives have fallen off the tree, but also so have, uh, so have many of the leaves. And so the tree looks a sorry state. 
Verse 13, so it will be on the earth and among the nations when the Lord comes in judgment. But as with any harvest, end of verse 13, some are left. Some olives are left on the tree. And so the ones left when this harvest happens are those who've remained faithful to God. And it's their voices we hear in verses 14 to 16. They raise their voices, they shout for joy. From the west they acclaim the Lord's majesty. Therefore in the east give glory to the Lord. Exalt the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, in the islands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we hear singing glory to the righteous one. As this day of devastating judgment comes upon the world, some are celebrating. It seems incongruous until we think about it. We all do, I think, want to see right triumph over wrong. And that's what this is is doing here, as people see right winning, God doing the right thing, justice coming, people are triumphing. Now, the funeral of the drummer Lee Rigby was held this week and uh, reminded me, and I guess all of us, of his terrible murder. When we see such horrendous acts of barbarism, we call out for justice to be done, rightly so. We want those, those guilty of the offence to be punished. And when that happens, of course, those who did it have held their hands up. We know who did it. But when they are finally sent down, I imagine we'll see pictures of the family rejoicing that justice has been done. That's what's going on here. A final day of judgment of people saying, that's right. Justice has been done. And, of course, it's a good thing when evil is dealt with. Because when evil is finally dealt with, then we can feel secure. That's another reason for for rejoicing. That's what's going on in verses 14 to 16. And right at the end of it, we see that God is described, verse 16, as the righteous one. That's another reason to rejoice. We want to see the day when God is seen to be doing the right thing. We do want to see that. When something terrible happens in the world, people often say to me, why doesn't God do something about it? We want God to put wrongs right. This chapter says he will. And sometimes people say to me, I can't believe in a God who doesn't care about evil. We want to see that God is righteous. This chapter says he is. He won't just ignore all the evil that's going on in the world. That's the good news of these verses. Justice will be done. That's why people are rejoicing on that day when it finally happens. But there's a strange thing in verse 16, because halfway through the verse, Isaiah isn't rejoicing. He says, I waste away, I waste away, woe to me, the treacherous betray, with treachery, the treacherous betray. You see, the first half of the chapter has been talking about a judgment day that is yet to come. And for sure, Isaiah will rejoice when that day comes. In fact, we see that in chapter 25. But now, until that happens, he feels the burden of living in a world of treachery. Do you feel that? You turn on your television news and you see all this stuff going on. Do you feel that burden? That's what he felt. All over the world, Isaiah sees people who've who've been disloyal to the Lord. And Isaiah knows that that will continue until this day of judgment comes, and that distresses him. And so he warns the people, warns all people of the judgment to come in verse 17. 
Terror and pit and snare await you, O people of the earth. Whoever flees at the sound of terror will fall into a pit. Whoever climbs out of the pit will be caught in a snare. He tells this devastating picture that there's no escape, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. For the very ground that they tread on as they run away will break up under their feet, verse 18. The floodgates of the heavens are opened. The foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken up. The earth is split asunder. The earth is thoroughly shaken. The earth reels like a drunkard. It sways like a hut in the wind. So heavy upon it is the guilt of its rebellion that it falls, never to rise again. And this judgment is so far extended. It's not only... On the earth, but you'll see in verse 27, even in the heavens above, the, uh, the, the unseen world. Verse 21, uh, in that day the Lord will punish the powers in the heavens above and the kings on the earth below. Every creature that has turned from God, seen and unseen, will be judged. Verse 22, they'll be herded together like prisoners bound in a dungeon. They'll be shut up in a prison and be punished after many days. And when that happens, there will be no doubt that the Lord reigns. That's verse 23. But where have we got to? Well, in his great kindness, out of his love for his children, the Lord is warning us not to turn to the world for security, for very simply, there is no security in the world, which is why we feel so insecure, why we're always looking for security. Because we can't find the security that we so need. No matter what steps we take, the world cannot deal with the great problem of death. And in running to the world and away from God, we face judgment that no one can stand. We'll never feel secure in this world. And so, because he loves us, the Lord warns us not to put our trust in anything other than him. And in chapter 25, we see why. Now, at this point, don't let your heart sink and think, is he going to go through the whole of chapter 25? No, he's not. Chapter 25, though, is a great chapter of singing and feasting. It's in stark contrast to chapter 24. It's a chapter of salvation and rescue, and crucially, a chapter of total security. The people who are rejoicing are rejoicing that uh, right has been, uh, wrongs have been put right and that vulnerable people have got a place of total security. And those who are rejoicing and singing are those who follow the Lord, verse 1. O Lord, you are my God. Verse 9, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. It is those who trust the Lord who are rejoicing here. Because it's those who trust the Lord who don't have to face God's judgment. They will be saved from it. As we begin to draw to a close, turn back with me to chapter 24 and verse 6. Do you see this crucial line in the second line of verse 6? Therefore a curse consumes the earth, its people must bear their guilt. We know that, people must bear their guilt. If we're guilty, we must be punished. We must bear our guilt. Unless there's someone who can bear our guilt for us. That is the wonderful good news of this baptism service. That is the the brilliant news of the book of Isaiah. You see, again and again, Isaiah tells us of someone who will bear our guilt. Someone that Isaiah calls the servant of the Lord. We know it's the Lord Jesus. 
the one who served God and served his people by dying for us, bearing our guilt as he died on the cross. For you see, as he died on the cross, he was taking our punishment for us. I stand here as a guilty person who ought to be judged by God. Jesus hangs there as the innocent person who does not, who should not uh, be judged by God. But he says, we'll do a swap. I'll take your punishment on the cross and you can go free so that you don't have to face God's judgment. That's what baptism's all about. Saying that we can be washed clean by God. We can't do it ourselves, but he's done it for us. Baptism is about trusting ourselves to Jesus Christ to give us the security that we so desperately need. And John and Nicola, as you think about giving Elliot a secure future, you can't do a better thing than what this service is all about, introducing him to Jesus. For Jesus is the one, the only one, who can give us the security that we need. And to have it is such a wonderful thing, such a liberating thing. And that is why there is this singing right through chapter 25. Let me take you to the very core of chapter 25 as we close now. Verses 6 to 8. Just to see, give you a glimpse of the security that can be ours in Christ. See, in verses verse 6, there is a banquet. In contrast to chapter 24, where in judgment the wine stops flowing. Here, in the new heavenly Jerusalem, the eternal hope that we have. Verse 6, on this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. Not only is there a steady flow of wine at this banquet, but it's the best. It's aged wine, vintage wine. And the food is the finest quality. The best cuts of meat are on this table, all prepared by the Lord. This is a place of unbridled joy, singing and feasting. And when we read verse 7 and 8, we see why. Verse 7, on this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. The shroud is the burial cloth. That's the thing that covers all nations because everyone all over the world has death hanging over them all the time. But, verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. Can you imagine living in a world where death no longer features? Where death has been swallowed up forever? That would be a secure world to live in. That's the promise for those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this first line in verse 8 is picked up in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where it speaks of Jesus' resurrection from the dead that makes all the difference as, as we trust in him. Death swallowed up forever. And when death is swallowed up, verse 8, there'll be no more sadness, no more tears. This is a world of total security. And in case you're wondering, this is not just wishful thinking. For Jesus not only died to deal with our guilt, but he rose again from the dead. And there is good, solid, reliable historical evidence for his resurrection. And so when we say, verse 1, you are my God, when we say, verse 9, we trust in our God, then this is the security we have. Resurrection life after death, no fear of the judgment to come, And a future with our God, a future in a place of joy and plenty, total security for all eternity. What could be better than that?
Let's pray together. Our Lord and God, thank you so much that in your loving kindness towards us, you warn us of the danger to come, that we may run to you and have a great secure future ahead of us. We thank you so much for the death of the Lord Jesus and for his resurrection. We thank you that as we trust him and him alone, we can be absolutely certain of a future in a new heavenly Jerusalem, a new heavenly place where there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And we ask that you'd help each one of us to trust in him alone that we may be there with you for eternity. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.